Good morning, everyone. How's everybody doing? Good? For Sunday, 11 o'clock. Great. Can we give a, a, a hand of applause for God for supplying our needs as a church? Man, because a lot of... A lot of people, individuals, community, businesses, and churches have been hit hard by this COVID effect. And not only that, but just all the injustices that's going, down, going on right now. Man, it seems like people have gave, given up on the church, right? But that's not the case, as we have seen today, when Jeff gave those numbers today. But let's go ahead and read our text for today. It's coming out of Matthew 5, 43 for 48. So as custom, let's read this together. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor, your enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you, so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your Father who is in heaven. For he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good, and sins on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles do the same. Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. Let's pray. Lord, I want to thank you for the opportunity to stand up again and be an instrument of your word to convey your truths to people and also to myself, Lord God, but not only to edify ourselves, but to edify the world, Lord God, and draw more people to you. So I pray right now, Lord God, that you get me out of the way and use the power of your spirit to do wonders that only you could do. In Jesus' name, amen. Five months and almost two weeks of no school. 157 days off of work, 3,768 hours of just being away from the house. How many of us want that right now? <laughs> but that's how long the Ukraine war has been going on. Five months and two weeks of no school because kids have no school to go back to. 157 days off of work because there's no jobs to go back to. 3,768 hours of just being away from the house. Why? Because their house no longer exists. War sucks. I don't care what type of war. If there's two enemies going against each other, there's going to be casualties, innocent lives lost. You know, if, if war could be summed up in a song, it was written in 1970 by a, guy not, by a guy named Edwin Starr. Some of you probably heard this. Some of you who have seen the movie Rush Hour probably heard it more sooner. But it goes like this. War? Huh. Good God. What is it good for? Absolutely, Absolutely nothing. See, war usually begins... The same way, right? First, you got to identify the enemy, and then you got to pursue the enemy, but then you got to attack the enemy. And as Christians, yes, we are in a war, but the good news is the war is already won. 
But still, we have enemies. And God is calling us to do something totally different than what we as Americans or even people of the world have been brought up to do. See, God causes us or calls us to identify the enemy, to pursue the enemy. But here's the change. Rather than attack, he calls us to love the enemy. So today, what we're going to look at for the text today is the three things that I just mentioned. We have to identify the enemy. We have to pursue the enemy. And then we have to love the enemy. Verse 43 says this, You have heard that it was said, You shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. And as custom in the section of Matthew, Jesus is questioning the disciples and his hearers of what they have heard, right? You have heard before. And it's really a big difference, right, when you hear them from like a third party than actually hearing from what's written or the actual source, right? You know, I used to work at the Y for a number of years, and we used to play this game called the telephone game. Anybody familiar with that? All right, so essentially what it is is that you will have a group of about seven people, a person right here and another person at the end, and the goal is to transfer the message to the person at the end to make sure that they received it well, right? So for instance, the person on this side might say, hey, I love to go swimming in the pool. Seven people down, the translation becomes, I like to poop in the pool. <laughs> so interpretation matters, right? They're over there trying to figure out, all right, who said that? Who got it wrong? So I believe, I truly believe that the early teachers of the law had good intentions. But something happened. Something changed. Because they read something but they deducted something that was totally different. And what made things more challenging for the hearers of those days is that common folks like us, we did not have access to the scriptures. Only the spiritual elite, the Pharisees and Sadducees, they were in charge of teaching the people. So if the scribes and Pharisees are teaching in a way that is way left field, the people could not go to the Bible and see if it's right. They were at the mercy of of the leaders. And what I know this, what, what I noticed in, in Jesus all throughout, throughout the Gospels of Matthew is when Jesus addressed the Pharisees and the scribes, he said, have you not read? But when he addresses the common folks, the disciples, he says, have you not heard? So Jesus knew what was going on. And in this section known as the six antithesis, which is the six you have heard statements, is that I believe that Jesus uh, strategically picked these six because these were the challenges that Israel was having during that time. You have heard that it was said. I mean, all six of these were on full display in the gospel. Think of it. Murder. The first one. You see how fast they convicted Jesus and threw him on the cross? They had a problem. Adultery. You all remember the story where they got that woman threw her in the middle of all these folks and said, stone her. The oaths, they lied on Jesus. They wanted, the, they wanted the people to lie on that woman. Why? So they could get away with murder, retaliation. How many times did Jesus have to escape from the people that were trying to kill him? In our passage today, love your neighbor and hate your enemy. 
You guys have seen this all throughout the Gospels, how they treated anybody outside of their community. And all these things were taught by the spiritual leaders, either verbally or just by their actions. That's why Jesus says, do and observe whatever they tell you, but not the works that they do. Why? For they preach, but do not practice. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, I have been a Christian for about 14 years. I've been Bible, uh, advanced education and Bible study for about six years. And I will tell you this. I have not read one passage, unless one of y'all can prove me wrong, where God specifically tells Israel <clears throat> to hate your enemies. Not one passage. How can these spiritual leaders who have the text right in front of them come up with something like this? then I began to think, well, we have to give them a pass, right? They don't have the resources that we have. They don't have all the education that we have. But then I began to think, we are just like them. Sometimes we like to add stuff to scriptures and say, it's scripture. But I want to set you all free today. Now raise your hand if you all heard this before. And we think it's scripture. God helps those who help themselves. <laughs> All right. Psalm 72, 12, Psalm 72, 12 to 13 says this, For he will deliver the needy who cry out, the afflicted who have no help. Here's another one. Money is the root of all evil. <laughs> no, the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. And the one that strikes me the most is this. Hate the sinner. I mean, hate the sin. <laughs> oh, <don't>. <laughs> Please. <laughs> Here's the one that strikes me the most. Hate the sin, but love the... Now tell me how you could do that. How can you separate the two? If somebody is getting physically abused, a woman, child, or even a man, how can you sit there and tell that individual that's getting abused, hate the sin, but love the sinner? That has the possibility to cause more harm than good. And what amazes me is that these Jewish leaders read the Torah day and night. And Deuteronomy 10 says this, he... God executes justice for the fatherless and the widow and loves a sojourner, giving him food and clothing. Love the sojourner, therefore, for you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Israel, you know what it's like to be in oppression. You know what it's like to be in a bondage. You know what it's like to be taken advantage of. What changed? What caused you to scratch out Love the sojourner to hate the enemy. And I want to be, make sure that we understand the transition because anybody outside of the Jewish community was considered an enemy. Hate your enemy. But let's think about that word hate for a minute. And take off your nice Christian hats for a second. How many of y'all hate something? Raise your hand. Okay, so we got some nice Christians in here. For those that don't raise your hand, let me ask you this. Do you look forward 
to stubbing your pinky toe on the dresser. <laughs> do you hate that? Can I get a raise for that? Let me ask you another question. Do you look forward, when you walk out this building today, that you're going to be slapped in the face with NC humidity? <laughs> I hate that. Those are some of the things that I hate. But don't raise your hand for this, because if you do, you might get some oil splashed on you or a circle of prayer. But how many of y'all truly hate somebody? How many of y'all wake up or see somebody's face and just, I really hate you right now? And just think of that word hate, right? You can't just say hate with like a, a mellow tone, right? I hate you. No, hate has emotion behind it. I hate you. But yet, these Jewish folks, since the age of six, were teaching their kids, and all the way up until they get older, to hate. Hate your enemy. So generation after generation after generation, they are teaching people to hate people that don't look like them, that don't identify with them. So there's no wonder when the scribes and Pharisees see Jesus, they always want to kill him. And here's the thing, for doing good works. Why would you want to kill somebody that's healing somebody? Why would you want to kill somebody that is actually saving somebody? Why do you want to kill somebody that's actually giving value to somebody? It's because they have been taught to hate people that is different for them. And one thing that hate does, right, it creates a pathway, it creates an enemy. So now that we have things that we do not like, now we can point communities and at people and say, man, we just don't like them. Matter of fact, we hate them. And also, although some of us may not say hateful things, but sometimes we could come off as hateful. When we see somebody standing at the corner, don't make eye contact, we act like they don't exist, can that be expressed as hate? Or perhaps when, when people are blind to the gospels, blind to the things of God, and yet we are mad at them because they're spiritually blind, and we respond in a way that shows us, or that shows them that we disagree with them. See, now that we have created a narrative of hate, now it's easier for us to identify an enemy. And I believe, and I truly believe this, that the same way Israel back in the day created enemies or identified enemies is the same way that you and I do it. So, Dash, how can you say that? Well, because the Bible says it. The Bible says there's nothing new under the sun. Yes, we have new technology, buildings, higher education, but guess what? The heart is still the same. We still have this deceitful, idolatrous heart that always wants to satisfy myself. And I would even go farther to say that our heart has even developed more because if sin developed thousands of years ago, it's like a snowball rolling down a hill. It gets bigger and bigger with each generation. But now they're established hate, and we can examine. Now we examine how enemies are created. Now, this is not exhaustive, right? There are plenty of ways that people create enemies or become enemies. But these are the four that I came up with. Enemies are created because someone has hurt us. They have done something to me spiritually, 
physically or emotionally, and I just can't stand that person. Hate. I hate that person. And it pained me months ago, and I know it's been coming out for years, but it really came to light months ago when women, vulnerable state, come to the pastors for help, and they are shut down because of the abuse that they have been receiving from the loved one. You know, it pains me when I hear kids being abused by priests, and yet they still have love for the church. Enemies are created because of disagreements, right? And we see this a lot, especially in our political world, right? We're friends in Christ, but when it comes to political differences, we split. It's almost as if our political parties, our identity, or whatever, is more important than the gospel. Is that what unites us? Or is the gospel that unites us? You know, there's something in philosophy called situational ethics where is it ever a good time to do something unethical, right? For instance, if somebody is hiding in your basement, if somebody is asking for that person so they could murder him, is it okay to tell a lie? And I believe we have situational enemies. Yeah, we're friends. But as soon as I find something that we disagree with, I'm out. Matter of fact, I'm going to come off a little salty towards you because there's a disagreement. Enemies can't be created by yourself. What I mean by that, sometimes we are our own worst enemy. We set ourselves for higher standards. Man, how can I do that again? And we know exactly the punishment that we deserve. So we put ourselves in hurtful situations. Sometimes we do hurtful things for each other. Why? just to get back at the enemy, cause more harm than good. And then lastly, we have passive enemies. And what I mean by this is that we are hated on, not because of the things that we do, but because of what we believe. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. See, now that we have identified the enemy, God is calling us to pursue the enemy. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, in this text, there are two types of enemies that Jesus is talking about, right? There's this enemies where two people know that they're enemies and they're kind of going against one another. And then there's a, a different type of enemies where, like I mentioned earlier, people are hating on you because of what you believe in. And this is what Jesus calls the persecuted. Now, in this first section, love your enemies, and I want to preface with this, right? If somebody has hurt you in any type of way, and you don't feel safe going to that person, don't go. God's love is not dependent on if you go to that person or not. Jesus fulfilled all of that but just pursue that person as much as you feel comfortable. Sometimes you don't. But this word love is not a passive love. This is what we call an agape love, right? This is an action, right? This is not just, hey, I love you. No, I'm doing something to show you that I love you. I'm seeking your best interests. But isn't loving your enemies a struggle for us? Some of us 
it's hard to even show love for people that are our friends. For some of us, it's hard to show love and words of affirmation to the people we love. So how much more harder is it for us to show love for your enemies? So I'm not going to lie to y'all. Loving your enemy is hard. But here's the promise. God doesn't give us a command without giving us the ability to do it. God does not give us a command without giving us the ability to do it. Let me picture this for y'all. Imagine if I told you all to fly to California, right? It'll be tough. One, maybe you ain't got no pilot license. Two, you don't got no plane. Three, as high as gas prices are, I know you don't have no gas to fly no plane from here to California. But what if I told you to fly the plane. I will provide the plane. As a matter of fact, I know a pilot that owns a plane, and he's going to fill it up for you. Then all you have to do is just get on the plane and put your hands on the steering wheel. See, that's what I believe God is calling us to do. He has provided the plane, which is our body, the vehicle. He has provided the driver, which is the Holy Spirit, and he has provided the fuel, which is prayer. See, God has done all this stuff for us, and he just wants us to get on the plane. But as you all know that have flown before, you know when you fly, sometimes it's turbulence. Right? And I remember the first time I felt, I, I felt that turbulence, and even now I have flown a plane dozens of times. But any time I feel turbulence, I start to pray. Lord, forgive me for my sins. Lord, please let me see my kids one more time. And then it settles down, right? All that fear and anxiety eases. And it's the same thing when we engage with our enemies. Lord, I do not want to go there. Lord, you know what they have done to me, Lord God. You know how I feel about them. But the Lord says, pray, for I am with you, and I will never leave you. Love your enemies. Romans 12, 7 says this. Do not repay anyone evil for evil. Be careful to do what is right in the eyes of everyone. And we all know, if you are a Christian, your life is under a microscope, as it should be. Because people want to know if we practice what we really believe in. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. And we all know there have been plenty of failures in the church, and there will continue to be failures in the church until Christ come. But one of the biggest failures that I believe that we have done as a church is persecuting our enemies. See, God calls us to pray for those we persecute, but for some reason, we tend to take persecution personally as if we are the reason for the persecution rather than God. But this isn't type, talking about any type of persecution, but persecution that I bring on myself, right? God, I, I got written up at work again. I guess they don't like Christians. Well, no. You got written up at, at work again, and you lost your job because you're late to the Zoom calls. 
how are you going to be late to the Zoom calls? See, it doesn't matter if you riot for a good cause or what you think is a good cause and you get arrested. That's not persecution. It doesn't matter if you storm the Capitol and talk about Jesus saves. That's not persecution. Jesus said, those that are persecuted for my name's sake. If persecution is caused by our own view of how things should be handled, that is not persecution because of the gospel. It's persecution because of our own desires. Some of us need to go back and read James 4. Where do arguments and quarrels come from? From our own desires. Blessed are you when people insult you, persecute you, and falsely say all kinds of evil against you because of me. Not because of Jeff, not because of what your grandma said, not because of what you did, none of that. Persecuted for Christ. But church history has shown that the church has been doing also a lot of the persecuting. Early church crusades. Early church, conquering nations, the Pope giving a blessing to make people slaves. But we don't have to go too far. In our American church, hate priests on the pulpit against women, against blacks, Native Americans. It seems that the church, just like the Jews, might have an interpretation problem. Pray for those that persecute. But why would Jesus want us to pray for those that persecute? Four, four reasons why Jesus tells his followers to pray for those that persecute us. Number one, because repaying evil for evil does not work out all the time. We have a problem with one-upping somebody. You shoot down one of my helicopters, I'm going to shoot down two, two of yours. You shoot down five of my men, I'm going to kill ten of yours. We have a one-up problem. The eye for eye and tooth for tooth does not work, and Jesus knows this. <laughs> Two, because God desires all people to be saved. Listen to this. If your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. In doing this, you will heap burning coals on his head. Now, what's interesting about coals in the Old Testament, if you all remember the book of Isaiah, when Isaiah was about to see God, they got a hot coal and put it in Isaiah's mouth. It purified him. So coal has this sense of purifying people for the presence of God. So when Jesus says, um, you will heat burning coals on his head, it's our gospel kindness that gives us and the person the ability to purify minds and hearts to prepare them for the gospel, to open the door for the Holy Spirit. See, our kindness has a tendency to open the door for people and say, hey, how can I hate this person? He keeps on dropping off chocolate, flowers. How can I hate a person like that? It's because of the one that they serve. Three, because God is preventing bitterness within our own hearts. How hard would it be when every day you wake up, you got somebody on social media talking trash to you? How hard would it be where every time you go to work, every time you step out the house, somebody is persecuting you? That could cause you to have bitterness towards that person, to the organization or to that, to that individual. 
See, God is trying to prevent that. So when bitterness or we are getting persecuted, Lord, help me not become hatred towards that person. Put me on level ground, Lord God. And lastly, it's not our place for revenge. The Bible says constantly, constantly, over and over again, revenge belongs to the Lord. Why we love our enemies. 45 through 48, so that you may prove yourselves to be sons of your father who is in heaven, for he causes the sun to rise on the evil and the good and sends rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Even the tax collectors, do they not do the same? And if you greet only your brothers and sisters, what more are you doing than others? Even the Gentiles, do they not do the same? Therefore, you shall be perfect as your heavenly father is perfect. Now, one thing I love is lawyer shows. And I believe, I believe if I was not studying to become a pastor, I would be a good lawyer. I probably would have got some of y'all off of some of the stuff that you got convicted of. (laughs) Speeding, obviously. (laughs) But, But I will be a good lawyer, and everybody knows, right, no matter a lawyer or whatever occupation you are, it's hard to prove something without evidence, right? You have to have something concrete that proves what you are talking about. And the evidence for us as Christians that we are children of God is the way that we treat people. Not just the way that me and you interact with one another, but the way that we treat people that don't look like us, that don't agree with us. All these different people. See, it's easy for us to fight for the rights of the unborn, be pro-life, but it's hard for us to fight for the rights of the immigrants. It's hard for for us to fight for the rights of the gay and transgender community. We are pro-life, right? See, another thing that tends to happen is that when I give money away, to my brothers and sisters in Christ, $100, yeah. Can I borrow $100? Yeah, you can have $100. But when somebody on the corner is asking for $3, I start to think, what are they going to do with the money? Are they going to drink? Buy some drugs? Buy cigarettes? What are they going to do? See, we're showing partiality. Because that Christian that you gave $100 to could run and do drugs, and the same thing the, the homeless person could do. But yet we show partiality, and Jesus, and Jesus is telling us, don't do that. James calls this the sin of partiality. He says, if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You are doing well. But if you show partiality, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors. See, God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. The sun rises on the evil and the good. But yet, we want to be the ones that put stipulations on who gets grace and who doesn't. God sends the sun and rain on all people regardless of how they live or regardless if they believe in God or not. Common grace. God's goodness leads people to repentance. 
And when we show partiality, God says that we are no different than the Gentiles and we are no different than the tax collectors. And I want to focus on the tax collectors real quick. Nothing against anybody that works in accounting or the IRS or anything like that. We love y'all. But tax collectors were considered traitors in the Jewish community, in Jewish community. And the reason being is because someone from ethnic Jews who was raised in the Jewish history knows everything that has happened to them. They become tax collectors for the Romans, right? And what they typically would do is not only collect funds for the Romans, but also add an additional tax to your own people. It's like you know the history. You know what we have been going through. You know that we are oppressed, but yet you still want to put an extra tax on us. And when Jesus says you are no different than the tax collectors, that's an insult. <laughs> Traitors and sinners, and you're just like them? And this is how the Jews in this time felt. But then you begin to see that, man, we are just like them. We are just like the tax collectors. Don't we show partiality? See, one of the problems we have as a church today is that we only want to greet our brothers and sisters in Christ, stand up for the rights of our brothers and sisters in Christ, support our brothers and sisters in Christ, yet God is challenging us to something bigger than ourselves. See, we need to get that mindset that we only fight for the rights of Christians. We need to fight for the rights of humanity. You are the light of the world. A city on a hill cannot be hidden, nor does anyone light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on the lampstand, and it gives light to all who are in the house. Let your light shine before men in such a way that they may see your good works and glorify your Father who is in heaven. Now, I don't want to sound like a jerk, but I already see the light. I already see the light that leads to God's glory. I already see the light that leads to salvation. It's the people out there that need to see the light. So if we keep on building these Tower of Lights and not going out to the world, we're showing partiality. God has caused us, caused us, or is calling us to do different. He says, be perfect as your Father in heaven is perfect, right? But this word perfect is not in the sense of being without sin, right? Because none of us could perfectly wake up this morning and do everything that God says. No, what he's talking about being perfect is being whole, being complete, not showing favoritism, not picking and choosing who does what and who gets what. No, God says, be perfect. Here's what you got to understand, and I'll close with this. Jesus left his throne. He left his neighbors, the Trinity, to engage with his enemies. And this is the action of agape love. See, Jesus did all that, transformed our hearts, and God is calling us to leave our neighbors Love our enemies. Why? So we, too, can transform the hearts of our neighbors. You know, in war, like I mentioned earlier, there's two wars I want to talk about real quick. One war is the, the fighting war, right? We're actually going head-to-head with one another. And all throughout our history, American history, you can see the devastation that has caused. Relationships has been fractured, right? 
Some people just don't look at us the same. We don't look at different nations the same. But there's another war and another hero who I want to talk about. Because both wars have great impact, right? It could be a positive impact or a negative impact. And I would argue that the American war, there is some good, but ultimately has has some negative impact. But there was a war in America some years ago in the 60s and 70s that Martin Luther King ran. And he did not have the message of violence. He had the message of nonviolence. And we could see the ripple effect of both. And I would argue that Martin Luther King had had the greater impact of the two. So CTK, who is your enemy? Who are the people on the other side whose God is calling you to engage with? Maybe, just maybe, God is calling you to politely ask your Christian friends to leave the table so that you can make room for your enemies. So I pray today that this week, God will put somebody in your mind that you could pray for, that you can invite over, and that you can have that conversation. Let's pray. Lord, um, thank you for all that you have done, Lord God. Thank you for being the God who pursues his enemies. Lord God, we know that we were create, we were born enemies in this world, and we know that you have saved us regardless, Lord God, that anything that we have done. So, Lord, I pray today and for this week, Lord God, that you put on our mind, put it in our hearts, relationships that need to be restored, disagreements that need to be put to the side, and let the gospel shine forth like you have called us, uh, caused us to do. And we say this prayer in your son, in Jesus' name, amen.